You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number one, two, two, three, I think I'm at. <laughs> it's always hard to remember sometimes. All right, uh, we are entitled today Queen for a Slay. I am Rob Jan and our podcast title is Poddara, which is riffing off our feature interview today, which is with Astrid Schultz. I've not pronounced your name before. I hope I got that right, Astrid. Absolutely. Thank uh, you. It's good, good of you to say so anyway, even if I didn't. <laughs> now, uh, Astrid has a new book um, she presents for your and Zero G's consideration her debut fantasy science fiction novel Four Dead Queens, now available as an Ellen and Unwin paperback. Now, alongside her writing, Astrid has crewed for a decade as both artist and coordinator of... Uh, uh, for, sorry, of, not for, uh, for Weta Digital, uh, amongst other production companies, working on movies like Avatar, The Lovely Bones, District 9 and The Adventures of Tintin, as well as television shows including Erky Perky <laughs> and Legend of Enyo. Now, um, Astrid, oh, I've forgotten to introduce our co-host, uh, yes. Megan McHugh. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Astrid. Welcome. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Now, uh, first off, congratulations on your debut novel. Very impressive. Thank you so much. And I wanted to know, because I've been looking at... Um, you're a self-confessed Disney fan. Absolutely, yes. And, and, and actually, so say we all now, one way or another now, that the Mouse Factory owns everything. Indeed. Marvel and Star Wars. Uh, do you have a, a favourite Disney movie uh, and a most influential one? It's difficult to pick a favourite. It's like picking a favourite child, I would imagine. Uh, but for me, Tangled is definitely up there as one of my favourites, which is one of the more recent yeah. Disney animated films. For Influential, it definitely was The Little Mermaid for me. So I, I grew up in, in the 90s and and to have just a strong female character who you know, was unapologetic in going after what she wanted, I think very much influenced the sort of characters that I wanted to read and the sort of characters that I wanted to write. Tangled is the Rapunzel one, isn't it? That's right, yes. <laughs> I'm not up on the, on, the <laughs> on, you know, I mean, I'm 22 Marvel movies, I'm fine. <laughs> you know. Little uh, Mermaid was my childhood one as well. I think everyone has their favourite from when they were growing up. Don't yeah. ask me, don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very well. Uh, probably the sword in the stone. Oh, okay. You do like the Arthurian <laughs> I, uh, legends. I, it's got good songs. <laughs> <laughs> They've all got good songs. Yeah, they do. <laughs> all right. Um, now, what was your career highlight in film and television? Definitely working on Avatar, James mm. Cameron's Avatar. It was... Not the last airbender. <laughs> no, not that one. I didn't have the pleasure of working on that film. But, yeah, we didn't know what how what the reception was going to be like it was something very new at the time and something very exciting and working with so many talented artists it, it definitely 
inspired me to get back into my writing because I I had been pursuing uh, film and TV for a while and I hadn't written as much as I used to uh, back in in high school and university. So yeah, just just seeing that first, we had a preview uh, session. I think it was about sixteen minutes of footage before the months before the movie came out, and seeing that in three D, and we were all blown away, and we were really excited, thinking this is something people are going to love. And and we did. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there are its critics uh, for Avatar, but. Ah. Box office uh, results don't lie, so yes, yes it was definitely successful. Even for the critics, I think you can't deny sort of the special effects and the kind of visual leaps mm. that that movie made. Like, regardless Absolutely. of your own personal feelings, I think it's, it's definitely an ride. achievement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I remember because we've talked about this extensively. Rob's <laughs> <laughs> a big Avatar fan. One, oh, one, cool. of, one <laughs> of the, uh, the the criticisms revolves around a plot where you know that cliched plot where. Uh, there's a, a civilization that um, is being exploited by awful capitalists or mm. I- imperialists, colonialists, all that sort of thing. And, yeah, a, a week after that movie came out, I was reading about um, uh, Papua New Guinea Village, which was being uh, uh, brutalised by um, by guards for the local mine. Mm. You know, I mean, it may be an old lesson, but it's one that we still haven't learned. Right. Mm. Anyway. Uh, that aside, that's great. What did you actually do on Avatar? So I was the models coordinator mm-hmm. and so I managed 54 artists from all over the world and essentially made sure that they handed in their work on time. I assigned out the the characters, the environments, uh, the creatures that had to, to be modelled and then sat in daily sessions, often with supervisors and directors to, to take notes back to the artists and, yeah, oversee the general management of the of that well, that's, department. That's digital modelling, of course. That's right, yes. Um, mind you, all modelling is digital one way or the other when you think about it. <laughs> it's very true. Uh, <laughs> that's an, that's interesting, an interesting um, career point. So here you are being in charge of other people doing it. How did you get to that position? So before that, I worked as an artist. Mm-hmm. So I was a modeller and rigger and I was working on kids' children's shows and I enjoyed it, but I was always more interested in the bigger picture. So schedules and planning and who's doing what where in different departments. So I kind of just decided to make that leap from artist to production Mm -hmm. and I I started as a production assistant and then worked my way up to coordinator and, yeah, then went over to to Wetter. Because we're always interested in these sorts of um, progressions. Uh, Did you do any formal management courses as well? I did one uh, course, like a short course, but otherwise it was just mostly my training was in 3D animation. I went to university to study animation, digital media, and, yeah, just being on the floor and and knowing how productions were run and how team, what was required of a team and how artists worked, that was kind of my training to to get that position. And how artists sometimes don't work. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like wrangling a team of uh, cats, basically. It can be, definitely, especially when you're um, on tight schedules with overtime and people are tired. But that's always, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit, (laughs) definitely in film, for sure. Okay, so um, actually used a word there that I wasn't sure if I had the right... um, definition of you said you're a rigger 
Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's when you have... The easiest way to understand is with the character. So you're essentially putting in the skeleton, the digital skeleton, so it can be animated by the animators. Mm. So it's a kind of technical role, whereas modelling obviously is more artistic and you're creating the look of the characters and sculpting them. I certainly had the wrong idea what Riga meant in this context. (laughs) Okay, now... On to your novel, The Four Dead Queens. Now, this is an Alan and Unwin paperback. Is it a trade paperback or... um I think it's just a regular paperback. Uh, Is this the first of... I mean, you know, you've got four in the title. Is this the first of, like, four books? No, it's actually a standalone. Okay. And it does too, he says, standing it up. (laughs) It actually does. Okay. Now, um, we've been accustomed to default mono, mono... yeah, monocultures in science fiction and fantasy. Uh, you know, the kind of thing you've got one world, one kingdom, one civilization where everyone sort of conveniently reflects a dominant socio political or other aspect of a culture. Um, you know, they're all warriors, they're all artists, etc. It used to be very useful uh, for television shows and movies, light on story arc, and this is more like in the 70s and the 80s. Um, so the audience could quickly get a handle on the setting for this week's 45-minute or two-hour uh, adventure. Um, but your novel is set in a, a place called Quadara, um, which uh, rather neatly gives us four diverse locales, uh, each reflecting a different aspect. Um, can you explain how you came about the four divisions, please? Sure. Uh, so the initial inspiration actually came to me in a dream. I dreamt that I was sitting in a horse-drawn carriage and I was wearing like a Victorian-style dress and a silver car flew by. And when I woke up, I thought, (laughs) why would there be such contrasting technologies and what world could I create where these things were kept that way? So the cultures and technologies were kept separate and what impact would that have on the people there? So I started thinking of of different ways to have like different eras, which eventually evolved into having a a nation that was divided and they were divided for a reason and the cultures had developed separately there. And the actual development of those cultures and the, the different technologies that they had was a process that went through several revisions through the actual revision of the book so in the beginning of the first draft it was quite vague with some of the quadrants what they were responsible for so it was yeah a bit of a process of not only developing what the quadrant was like but what their queen was like and how they kind of played off each other were they in direct contrast to what they represented or did they represent the ideals that their society had grown up with and and evolved which came first (laughs) <laughs> the queens or the culture? It was a little bit of both. Um, yeah, it's hard to kind of separate them now because obviously it's they they kind of changed each other in, in several ways through the, the revision process. But I, I knew I wanted to have four queens mm-hmm. uh, and I knew I wanted to have varying ages. I wanted to have one that was older. So she's the eldest is in her 40s and the youngest is 16. So I knew I wanted to have opposing personalities, opposing ages and cultures and backgrounds, but I hadn't worked out exactly what they would be yet. This is, um, it's interesting when, when you think about, uh, you know, creating characters, they're, they're like children, really. You, you put so much right. work into them. There's so much backstory that never makes it to the printed page. Uh, and, and here you have your favourite characters who you've spent months, sometimes years, working on. Mm. 
And and then you have to make that uh, that uh, dramatic decision: Are you going to kill them off? <laughs> but your book is called Four Dead Queens, so yes. you must have gone through that initially, th- thinking, "Well, that's it." Well, yeah, that's definitely the process. Was knowing from the outset that they were going to die, and I wasn't attached to them because that's that's the plot. But then when you actually spend all this time <laughs> fleshing out their backstory and making you know their wants and their dreams and their goals, and it feels really bad to actually then go through with it and kill them off. Mm. I, I noticed um, uh, in the, with the personal interactions, there is at least uh, one gay couple amongst the the cast of this was this an important thing to to uh, to realize in a fantasy novel definitely i think that it's really important in fiction and especially in ya to represent the world that we see mm-hmm. so if even in, though it's a fantasy we i needed to recreate you know the the diverse world that we have um, in society, mm. I remember when we had Richard Morgan on with his, um, I think it's called Command novel. Um, he he has a uh, a gay swordsman, um, a fantasy swordsman who's you know absolutely devastating. It's an interesting trope that hasn't been explored too often in fantasy, although we we are ten years later now, so it has <laughs> been somewhat explored. All right, now you've got four quadrants, four queens, which gives you four by four chances for interactions between their characters. Uh, and, and as this is a crossover murder mystery, mm-hmm. so we cross genres here, although, you know, really we shouldn't be surprised at that at all now. Mm. Um, so we see these characters at a critical juncture, which is what murder mysteries tend to do. Uh, it's very dramatic, which will bring out their best and worst under pressure. So I was thinking about uh, queens and being under pressure and I thought, <laughs> There's a track here, a, a track idea here in Mr. Bowie, uh, where he does because we like to play at least one Bowie track each week, and nice. have been seeing since the maestro passed away. Uh, and so we'd like to play um, "Under Pressure," which is uh, from the Best of Bowie album here, and, and he's working with um, Queen. So there you go. This is from uh, 1981, I believe. Wow. Hey, Space Buddies, I'm Danny John Jules. I play the cat on Red Dwarf, and I gotta tell you that listening to Zero G is fashionable as wearing knee-length socks with thongs. Zero G, industrial strength sci-fi pum-pum on three triple R. Rob Jan here on Zero G. And Megan McHugh. And here we are talking to Astrid Schultz, whose book Four Dead Queens, which is actually F-O-U-R, not it's not Four Dead Queens. <laughs> uh, it could be. It, it could be. Is uh, out now in Ellen and Unwin, and it's a f- it's labelled fantasy, but it's also um, science fiction. So we'll call it sci sci fi fantasy. Works mm. quite all right for us. Uh, and that was uh, Mr. Bowie there under pressure with Queen from the 1980s. And Astrid has a uh, a story about that song. Yes, I'm very familiar with that song because I worked on Happy Feet 2, which was done by the production company Dr. D Studios, which is no longer, unfortunately. But we sat in one giant warehouse, which included a mocap stage, and we would hear that song for months on repeat as people were dressed up as penguins and walruses and they tap danced to that song. Hmm. So very familiar with that. As they do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you run across that occasionally... uh, People who uh, were working in um, uh, security and reception in office buildings during Titanic, during the run of that movie. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I think the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic was yesterday. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, you know, so they all hated uh, My Heart Will Go On. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> it would be played in lobbies. Uh, and, and the same thing is, uh, I think it was uh, JB Hi-Fi employees could not stand um, um, Forever Autumn from War of the Worlds when the, the album was re-released and they oh. just kept playing it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. All right, uh, musical music aside there, um, apart from the, uh, the four uh, ex-queens, which sounds very Monty Python, actually, um, the, in the book uh, you've got two main characters, uh, Carolee Corrington, who's a thief, and um, Varen Bolt, or is it Varin? Varen. Varen. Varen Bolt, um, who's a, a messenger, and their um, their twin tasks in the in the story combine to make them the uh, I guess we'll call them the, the the protagonists who advance through the plot and get involved with the the murder mystery surrounding the four dead queens. Now, there are um, things about characters. Why is it? A, why is always one character in a fantasy novel a thief? <laughs> it creates good drama. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I needed... So when I first was coming up with the idea, mm-hmm. I had the Queen's Dying as, as kind of the initial concept and I needed someone to get involved in that who shouldn't be involved in it. Mm-hmm. And they needed to somehow come across this information that the Queen's had been killed. And I wanted a character who was a little morally grey and someone, you know, that could go on a good character arc, you know, that wasn't starting off as perhaps the best, nicest character in the world. And, yeah, so that worked out to be a thief. Okay. Uh, Plus she has the skill set required for certain operations within Mm. the novel as well. Um, Now, the the, the messenger, he's... um, interesting because he's from the uh, a more sort of repressed technological society um he's an aeonist and um i thought to myself uh, is he the uh, he's like the uh the, the typical button downed character the outsider character that you often get in science fiction he's like spock or uh, right you know <laughs> that, that sort of thing is uh, is, is there any influence um, from pop culture on on that that character not really. I mean, I I work very hard to make a nice um, male love interest because I like <laughs> the good guys. Yeah. That's something that uh, often, you know, you have the bad boy, especially in young adult fiction, which mm. is not something that I want to have in my books. I want to have, you know, someone who's supportive of of the main character and someone who's loyal and good and a direct contrast to Carolee, who's the thief. So she's obviously, her morals are a little questionable and she's a lot more outgoing and sassy and I just wanted to have that kind of direct opposite to create that drama and that clash between the characters when they first meet to also have to get them to work together when they are clearly such different people. He sounds less less like a Disney prince and more like one of the loyal sidekicks. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't think he would be yeah someone who's going to get involved in this kind of thing. I yeah. mean, he's he's all about his job, just you know going through life, doing what he's supposed to be doing, and he gets caught up in this this murder mystery. This is actually classically cinematic when you think about it. It's um, it's poor old Cary Grant stumbling into a situation involving Grace Kelly or somebody like that who just sort of whips past him <laughs> and he gets dragged off in their way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, are, there are several uh, good twists in the story, one of which involves an important structural element of storytelling, which I'm not going to go into because I don't want to give too much away. Uh, but it seems to me that the 
alteration to all of this. It is very actual cinematic. I've I've seen this kind of thing in movies before. Right. Mm. Um, were you very much influenced by your filmmaking um, career in terms of how you see this this book for unfolding? Definitely. I think for me. I can't write a scene unless I can visualise it in my head. So uh-huh. I need to know what the characters look like, what the environment looks like and what's going to happen. So I do tend to see the story unfurl like a movie. Yeah. And I want to have that experience for the reader. So that's wonderful to hear. Thank you for <laughs> saying that it's cinematic because that's the immersive feeling that I want the reader to have and that kind of quick pace that you get with film, you know, you you kind of cut from one important moment to another, which is quite different from maybe a TV series where you do have a lot more time to flesh out those scenes yeah. and conversations. And, and also in most fantasy novels or what you would consider like a high fantasy novel, you're, you're used to having lengthy chapters exploring the world or the political systems. And it's not so fast paced, but... As a murder mystery, I really wanted it to to have that feeling of, you know, that building pressure and that tension and that fast pace that you get with with thrillers and, and murder mysteries. So for that, I, I do tend to look more to, you know, film and what sort of structures that you can get in, in film and the way that they play with narrative. Um, I, I wouldn't think necessarily that Disney's, a, at least traditional Disney, is a great inspiration for murder mysteries. <laughs> um, are, are you a fan of detective novels or television shows or movies? I am, yeah. So I've always been a big fan of murder mysteries. Uh-huh. Uh, Agatha Christie. Mm. Um, I love playing Clue. I love murder mystery parties. Uh, I just I love the whodunit style yeah. things. So anything that's going to keep me on my toes and keep me guessing and twists is. I have a book recommendation for you, which I can tell. I'll tell. I must. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Um, It's a book called The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Have you read that? I keep hearing about it. I really want to read it. I like all of the things you just mentioned. And that book is is quite good. We covered it on the show, I'm pretty sure. I've raved about it before. Uh, Yeah, you definitely like that. It's a murder mystery with a twist. Who wrote that one? Uh, Stuart Turton. Then he probably would like Four Dead Queens by Astrid Sh- Astrid exactly. <laughs> Which is the movie we're talking the book with the movie. Oh, well, there you go. That's all right. That's what you want. <laughs> One day, hopefully. <laughs> what, any, any interest in um, the movie rights? There has been uh, uh-huh. some contacts. Nothing set in stone. So, I mean, it's. I think every author's dream to see their work on screen. I certainly wouldn't be against a TV series either. I think mm. uh, like a yeah. limited four-part series would work really well. <laughs> oh, yeah. One murder per series per episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know if um, Miss Fisher would be up. For, oh, she would be, or oh. maybe her, maybe her daughter, or perhaps a, a, like a medieval ancestor. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the other thing about this, uh, the characters that I, I wanted to mention, um, uh, Carolee has uh, something that's um, that's very um, very now. She has a, a dodgy mentor. Which right. we've just been through with Captain Marvel, really. Oh, yeah. Same sort of thing. Uh, and um, although this is more, it's not hidden here, it's sort of out in the Overt. open. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, his name is Machiel, um, Machiel? Machiel, yeah. Machiel? Machiavellian. <laughs> is that right? Were you thinking of Machiavellian there? I must have subconsciously because it has been brought up before and I, yeah, I, yeah didn't realise, but. No, I didn't realise until I just said that. And, and I thought. <laughs> It's funny when you read when you read books 
I, I tend to read them in my own voice to myself mm. internally, um, <laughs> which can be confusing when you're swapping around with the characters. But uh, in this case, um, you know, when you start pronouncing the names out loud, then then you start thinking, oh. I wonder. Are we are we in a Dickensian mode here, where <laughs> where all the characters have uh, names that are that are relevant or that sort of thing? Mm. Um, okay. The um, I'm not going to go any further on the subject of twists about the characters, except that I I really applaud your denouement, the Agatha Christie moment towards the end, where you know we find out everything. Thank you. Uh, Even I, who am steeped in um, genre and uh, historical uh, murder mysteries, far too many, (laughs) so much death (laughs) and mayhem, uh, did actually um, make me go, oh, yeah, quite clever. I like that. Which is very teasing to the listeners because I'm not going to tell you what what happens there. Which we should. (laughs) Of course not. Uh, The butler did it. Oh, wow. It's always the butler. All right. Now... um, this is your first fantasy science fiction novel. Do you have plans for more? Absolutely, yeah. So I actually handed in my draft for my second book uh-huh. two weeks ago. Uh-huh. So that comes out in the States uh, in early 2020 right. and hopefully here as well. Nice. So it's another young adult sci-fi fantasy mashup uh-huh. um, standalone. So Cool. Yeah. It's, and then now I'm working on a proposal for my third book, so continuing. Ah. Yeah. See, this is like theme. this is like talking to directors um, uh, when they when they're travelling around, or actors actually too. The same thing. Um, the thing that they've done is gone. They're right. on the, they're it's on in the, the press past. Tour. Yeah. 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 They're on the press tour, and now. So, what have you learned from writing this? that You're going to take with you for your next work. Oh, so many things. I mean, obviously, yeah, it was the first, my first published book. I had written many manuscripts before this one got picked up. Uh-huh. So it's more about the publishing process, I feel, that mm. I've I've learnt uh, and the marketing and promotion process because obviously, you know, being the book being out there for the public to consume, you, you get a lot of feedback on social media and so it's it's interesting to kind of then compare what's been popular with this book versus what I'm going to then be releasing mm. early next year and it is quite different so mm. will you know readers be interested so I, I guess the main thing is I'm thinking more about the readers now and the audience that I'm trying to target which I, I mean, I was aware of it when I, I wrote Four Dead Queens, but I'm very acutely aware of it now and thinking how certain twists and certain characters will land with readers and whether mm-hmm. they'll mm. they'll enjoy that or whether it will, will work how I've set it up. Mm. I have a quick question. I'm always interested to hear about um, the process, like the writing process. Is there any time of day or rituals or things that you uh, kind of did with this book? Uh, not really. So because I, I do work full time mm. uh, still in in the film, TV and animation industry, although I work remotely. So I work for an American software company. And so it's essentially nine to six. So after six o'clock, I'll, I'll sit down and weekends I'll write. And I just try and cram in writing whenever I can because, wow. yeah, it's, I, my schedule is, is pretty tight. Yeah. 
Well, you've just led to another question there. Is, what are you working on in the, in the film and TV industry at the moment, if you can tell us about it? Yeah, I can. So essentially I'm a consultant for our clients. So we have thousands of clients um, in various... They're all in the entertainment industry, sure. but in, in various uh, film, TV series or, or animation productions. And I give guidance to use our software. Um, it's called Shotgun. It's a tracking and review platform as well as just general production advice because I've come from studios and worked with large teams. So it's about essentially how to get your production from beginning through to delivery in the most efficient uh, way. So you're a pipeline facilitator. Yes, but very untechnical. <laughs> I am. I'm not good at the coding. Or you know, somebody has stuff. to be because otherwise the techies will just wander off and. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they have to be wrangled. I know this. <laughs> so um, this is uh, this is interesting. Uh, you're you've got a successful novel, right? And another one presumably coming. Like most writers, in Australia at least, you can't really give up your day job. Right. Uh, that's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, but you have an interesting day job too. So. I, I do. <laughs> and right now I'm able to balance it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've actually gone down to four days a week. My work is, is very flexible with our hours, which is fantastic. And, um, yeah, I, I do have a publisher in the US, so... Mm that is a little more sustainable than just being published in Australia, unfortunately. It's a small industry and, yeah, yeah it's tricky. Astrid, you were saying that you were working remotely. That is the feature of... Um, because nowadays you see so many Australian um, animation houses and visual effects places uh, being listed routinely in the credits of uh, large special effects heavy movies. Mm. Uh, and you actually can do all of this from Australia even with the NBN. You can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Caveat, even with the NBN, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, um, uh, you've probably all seen the, uh, the first pictures of a black hole that they managed to yes. um, And the memes. People just can't keep their hands off things before they make them into a meme. <laughs> no, no. I think the best one I've actually seen was, uh, and this is actually relevant, I'll get there. The best one I've seen was uh, the, the 2001 A Space Odyssey one, which turned the uh, the distinctive um, sort of half-smiley face of the black hole oh. into the front of Dave Bowman's um, yeah. space pod. I thought that was oh. very clever. <laughs> but anyway, um, the, the, the point I wanted to make here was that... Um, you can do this stuff from anywhere in the world at the moment. Uh, but the black hole stuff, they actually couldn't use the internet anywhere because they had, like, petabytes of data that they had to carry around in hard drives, it, which just would not go online with oh, that's such right, information. Yeah. So is that, uh, is that a problem, the, um, the speed of the internet here, when you're trying to do this sort of stuff? It can be. Hmm. Yeah, it, it can be a problem. We don't have... So it's a hosted service, so everything is hosted on our servers or we do offer a local install option but yeah it's the internet is not great here no. i mean yeah. i think everyone knows when you travel overseas you you're like wow it's yeah. so far <laughs> this is what it's meant to be like yeah. <laughs> i'm sure there's a there's a movie in this you know like someplace it's we might be the last bastion that are not taken over by the uh the alien um, digital creatures. Oh, yeah, because it's so slow for it to yeah. spread here because our internet's not fast enough. Yeah, everything, everywhere is infected, but Australia. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. But we've still got about uh, 24 hours or so. But it used to be the limiting factor was rendering time. Mm. So you'd have your rendering farms working away for days and weeks and months sometimes. Now it's not so much. It's, mm. it's, it's getting the, the data out there. Yeah, it can be. I, I remember on um, Happy Feet 2, we had we basically took the rendering farm from everybody. Like we were getting all the servers from from basically across, across the country to try and get it rendered out in time. Gracious. So. <laughs> well, render unto Astrid. What is Astrid's? Uh, four Dead Queens. And it's by Astrid Schultz. It's an Allen and Unwin paperback, and it's out now. And um, congratulations on it. Well done. Thank you so much. All right. Now uh, we'll have a track here, which I just pulled out at random um, <laughs> in my thematic way. And uh, it's um, a hip-hop rap song by the Young Fathers, although I'm sure it's a woman who's actually singing this one, uh, and it's called Queen is Dead, so I ah, thought that would nice. be appropriate. Thank you very much, Astrid. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to Elizabeth McCarthy for setting this up for us as well. Uh, I am J. Michael Strudzki, creator of Babylon 5, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. Who are you and what do you want? There we go. That was <laughs> Queen is Dead by the Young Fathers. <laughs> Thanks to Astrid Scholl for coming in with her novel. Yeah, Four Dead Queens, so check it out. Mm. Now, you also heard a little bit there, I, I, I let it uh, riff over into um, You Call Us Monsters. No question mark there, but I put one in anyway. From the Hellboy original motion picture soundtrack. Ew. Benjamin, now how do I pronounce his name here? He says, lifting the laptop up incorrectly. Oh, uh, ben- Benjamin Wallfish is the composer of that soundtrack. So, yeah. Now, I want to talk to you about this new Hellboy movie that's out. Yes. Now, I didn't realise this has come up very quickly. I knew it was happening. Oh. <laughs> yep. I knew it was happening. I knew that David Harbour was involved. I did not think it was out, out. Like, I, it, this was a surprise to me. So I'm interested to hear... I, ha- I have read some things, mm-hmm. so I'm interested to hear your take on it. Well, just as well I prepared for that. <laughs> and it's just called Hellboy, right? It's it was going to be called um, Hellboy um, Queen of Blood, but um, they, they dropped that. Okay, good, I think. Well, it is R-rated. Well, good in a way. Like, I think you've got to go all in. Do you mm. think it earns its rating? Absolutely. Gore-wise? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Nope, that's what we want. I'm trying not to say that with relish because there's already enough tomato Your eyes sauce. did light up. <laughs> did they? Oh, <laughs> damn it. I thought I was wearing my special uh, um, peril-sensitive sunglasses so they wouldn't do that. Anyway, uh, now, with a slew of credits under his belt working for Marvel and DC, uh, artist-writer Mike Mignola re- created the Dark Horse comics hero Hellboy in 1993. Everything comes from the 90s. Oh, all the good things. <laughs> in the fictional world, Hellboy is essentially the product of a World War II Nazi occultist attempt to summon demons. Isn't everything. Yes, <laughs> yes. Said demon turned out to be a baby, complete with red skin, mm-hmm. a tail, cloven hooves, which they don't really show because they're using a human and they don't want to see your eye nah, why would you? Why would you bother? Just show the upper torso. And he's got big boots anyway. So <laughs> he's got horns, um, which he keeps trimmed. Yes. 
and a powerful stone-like right hand that would have even Marvel's Benjamin J. Grimm shout enviously, that's for clobberin' time. <laughs> Happily, the Ratsy's plans were thwarted <laughs> and the demon child fell into the hands of the Allies, specifically Professor Trevor Brutenholm, who started a private organisation in the United States called the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defence, the B. P-R-D. They have a logo on everything. (gasps) Is it a cool logo? It is. All right, I'm looking it up. Uh, Of which um, Hellboy became their chief agent once the prof raised him right, as he would a human son. Yep. If a human boy was a demon hybrid and was literally armed with a right hand of doom. Hellboy starred in his own title comics, crossovers and spawned spin-off titles in the shared Hellboy universe. There are now three feature live-action movies, including this one, two animated ones, three video games, as well as tie-in novels. Right. Yes, there are action figures and cosplay, and as a reference, illusion or in an outright cameo, Hellboy has popped up in pop culture and works from Kim Newman's Anno Dracula series, Frank Miller's Sin City movie, the 2010 movie Kick-Ass and Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2 movie, which mm. is not surprising. Uh, just so you know, Hellboy is a monster in the supernatural procedural genre. He is big. Mm. And speaking of Blade 2, which actor Rodden Perlman appeared in, uh, it was um, del Toro who directed the first two Hellboy live-action movies in 2004 and eight, with Perlman starring as the title character. John Hurt played the professor with <gasps> Selma Blair and Doug Jones slash David Hyde Pierce as the BRPD uh, agents, Liz Sherman and Abe Sapien. Legendary prosthetics performer Doug Jones, who now plays Commander Saru on Star Trek Discovery, expertly inhabited the amphibious Abe Sapien role mm-hmm. with Hyde Pierce doing the voice. Ron Perlman also drew upon his considerable considerable experience performing under special effects makeup, which he honed during 1987 to 1990 in the at least partly scripted um, by George R. R. Martin series, Beauty and the Beast. Oh, happy Game of Thrones Day, by the way. Mm. <laughs> I haven't got fast the first um, series yet. That's what re- YouTube recaps are for, Rob. Haven't read the books. Oh, well, there's still time. There's still <laughs> there time. There is still time to be saved. I haven't even RSVP'd to that red wedding invitation I got. Best you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the fruitcake wasn't too good. <laughs> All right. Um, quick set brief, brief on that. I don't know if you know, there's been a lot of AFL Our Show crossovers lately and I thought you'd be tickled to know that the the AFL round this past weekend was the Game of Thrones round. I saw that on the cover of a a fish wrapper actually last week. And there were some wonderful promos that were filmed by AFL sports stars. Anyway, (laughs) back to Hellboy. (laughs) Okay. Now, the the first Del Toro take on Hellboy was pretty well received. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if I were to call it now, I'd give it a a yeah rating under the 
Zero G system. I quite enjoyed it. The sequel, The Golden Army, wasn't quite as adeptly made. No, very forgettable, to be honest. Um, I actually have forgotten it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, must, they must everybody reprise their roles for that, even some who didn't survive the first film because it's supernatural. Mm-hmm. Members of the cast also picked up their role as voice actors, which is no big stretch for Ron Perlman, who tends to get picked for that kind of thing quite a lot, uh, for the animated films as well. A third film back then was cancelled, likely when the poor reception for the sequel made funding sort of problematical. Mm, Dried that up. Now, this new film, initially still thought of as the third in the original movie trilogy, until everyone pretty... um, much involved with those declined to return without Del Toro at the helm. Yes. Uh, it's kind of a soft reboot. Which I... Un- yeah, right. So it was intended to be a follow-on mm. and then they couldn't get the interest. Mm. So they've... Right, interesting. They're tweaking the origin story a bit. They've recast the roles and they've brought in genre director Neil Marshall. Yes. Who showed great early promise with his refreshing take on werewolves in 2002's Dog oh, Soldiers. Oh, he did Dog Soldiers. Mm. Followed by a straightforward and absolutely terrifying subterranean horror movie in 2005, The Descent. You mentioned that a lot as one of your most terrifying yeah. horror experiences. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, I've not been subsequent impressed by his later movies uh, like the Roman versus Pict movie Centurion mm. or the post-apocalyptic Doomsday. It looks like he's done a bit of TV work as well. He's worked on Game of Thrones, Black mm-hmm. Sails, Westworld. And Lost in Space. And lost the new Lost in Space, yeah. And he's done some creditable, creditable work there. Um, the plot of this latest big screen incarnation of Hellboy takes inspiration from the comic book arcs Darkness Calls, The Wild Hunt and The Storm and the Fury. And the screenplay is by Andrew Cosby, mm-hmm. a US-American comic book writer, film producer and screenwriter who co-created the excellent sci-fi TV series Eureka. He's also the co-founder of Boom Studios, which is a comic book publishing house. And you may recall that now has the licence for a number of movie tie-ins and spin-offs, including Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Cosby does know his way around other people's franchise universes. Christopher Golden, who has creative ties to the Buffy franchise and wrote some of the Hellboy novels that I mentioned earlier, and uh, Mike Mignola also had a hand in initial script drafts on the reboot, but they don't actually get screenwriting credits. Interesting. The Hellboy verse draws frequently upon myths, legends, and folkloric sources in general, and the plot of this film's no exception. Mm -hmm. Somewhat happily for me, a semi-Arthurian story it is. Beginning with a sequence set in the Dark Ages when King Arthur and his knights, aided by the sorcerer Merlin and traitors amongst their opponents. Right on up your alley. It is. They triumph over the trademark evil sorceress, Vivian Nimue. Although she has an Arthurian canon mashup name, uh, she's played by uh, Mila Jovovic. Ah. She's enjoying portraying another villain. Love it. After all those much more numerous ass-booting hero roles that she's done. Uh, Hellboy, as you would expect, will encounter Nimue in contemporary times Mm -hmm. as she pursues her own hellish agenda. You know, bring all the evil forces together, conquer the earth. The huge. She's a little bit like Magneto in a way. She's got a grudge against humanity. I don't know. No one's quite like Magneto. No. She's not as neato as Magneto. <laughs> no. uh, the Arthurian connection with the supernatural in media is quite common. Jack Kirby's 1970 comic book hero Etrigan the Demon. Oh. Most particularly. And I wouldn't at all be surprised to find out that Mignola referenced that character creating Hellboy. Mm. 
uh, the Gargoyles animated series also had a uh, an uh, Arthurian connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of literature that's uh, magic related, mostly because of the Merlin connection, but, yeah. you know, otherwise. How does this rate as an Arthurian tale involved in the matter of Britain? Well, it's above, certainly above Guy Ritchie's recent King Arthur Legend of the Sword. Yeah. Or indeed Transformers The Last Night. But the Excalibur is set pretty low with those two films. Isn't it, though? Uh, it's not as much simple fun as the recent. And excellent, the, the kid who would be king. Yeah, you love that one. Uh, the Arthurian elements in Hellboy are integral to the plot of this movie and for the most part they do actually make sense within their, the context of their usage and in terms of um, you know what's come before, which okay. is a lot in Arthurian uh, mythology and um, spin-offs. <laughs> now, to the players in this. David Harbour from Stranger Things, uh, the Stranger Things is uh, Hellboy. Yes. Um, he has the physique for it. Great. He has the big head for it. <laughs> big head. He does, though. He does. Yeah. yeah. He has the presence, I think. He has think. the presence. Um, I'm not entirely sure that he has as much time under rubber as Ron Perlman did when he did Hellboy. Sure. And that actually does make a difference. Yeah, yeah. I'm here to tell you, you see it all the time, uh, it doesn't matter how good an actor it is or how much time they spend beforehand, there's always... Um, something when they're new to the prosthetics. Now, I actually mm. don't know. Maybe David Harbour has actually done other prosthetic roles. Um, I, I don't think he has. Cyber Scooby, go. I am, I'm on it. Sickened, sickened. <laughs> now, he was um, picked out of his uh, Stranger Things casting for this one. Mm. They saw him in that and they said, yeah, you'll do all right in this. Uh, and he has actually has done a lot more on the development of the character, on the actual characterization part of it studying it quite deeply and that does show mm. um, I have no trouble actually seeing him as Hellboy um, he he uh, is a, a little bit younger in terms of the character arc sure so this is like a he, he's described David Harbour describes it as a teenage Hellboy and yeah that makes sense so um, he's actually uh got an interesting relationship with his on-screen father in this. Ian McShane plays the um, the professor. Love it. Uh, and, you know, it's Ian McShane. You know, he can just walk on and, and, and basically dominate the set. Absolutely. Uh, not in the same sympathetic way that John Hurt did, but in a more gruff sort of tough love kind you of thing. You either love him or hate John Hurt, but just in this real visceral way. There's no in between. No, no. You're hurt one way or the other. Exactly. I mean, his characters, not him as an actor. I, of course, remember Ian McShane first, he says, of course, from Space 1999 and back in 1975. <laughs> but, of course, we know him as uh, Al Schwerin from Deadwood and Blackbeard the Pirate and um, On Stranger Tides. Uh, Mr. Wednesday? Mr. Wednesday, American Gods. But he's actually played a lot of fantasy um, mm. movies as well. He's been in them... Uh, King Bramwell in um, Jack the Giant Slayer, and there's oh, a, half a dozen other ones too. I forgot that existed. Mm. I could just sit there. Yeah, I know, me too. It's not a great movie. It's <laughs> no. Brian Singer's Jack the Giant. Ugh. So. Um, done with him. And actually, there's some stuff in here. There's giants in this movie too, by the way. Okay. I'm not going too much into the plot because there's not much of it in a there plot? <laughs> beyond that. Um, Sasha Lane plays um, Alice Moynihan. There's a few other people who are playing uh, BPRD agents as well. Mm. Daniel Day Kim. Oh, yes. Uh, from Lost. From Lost. And um, also Hawaii Five O And Divergent as well. Cool. But I first saw him in the Babylon 5 spin-off Crusade. Mm-hmm. These people are all 
they all they're all there for their performances. I know that's trite, but they do do the sure. right thing. Looks. They, Sorry, I was just going to say, it looks to me like David Harbour's mostly done character. Like, he doesn't really, I don't think, nothing I see here implies he's done much prosthetic work. Yeah. Look, now, the bunch of other people in this film, they all they all work very well together, I thought. Mm. Um, and and Miller actually does um, drive on as the villain in this, but I think she actually needs better time. Mm. And apart from one absolutely stunning uh, four-metre-long scarlet cloak mm. she wears cool um i don't think the costuming's up there i don't oh, think that's it's disappointing that's a great opportunity it missed, is. isn't yeah. it evil queen yeah. sorceress you know she should have Some like cool uh, stuff kate blanchett heller oh. stuff you know that's yeah that's the, mm. that's where the bar should be so, at i think you dropped the ball there costumers for that one i don't know why do you overall i mean as an arthurian you've sort of gone through that how it sits there well enough as a sort of a fantasy and in terms of um, what you mean in this soft reboot kind of thing how do you view it as like a hellboy film well i i appreciated the fact that they didn't try and that they didn't go through with any pasted on romance for hellboy in this oh yeah uh he rightly unscreened rejects any attempts at any yeah, of that good. uh there's more there's an effective hellboy mentor relationship with alice mm-hmm. and with um the father son one i'm not quite sure it works for me but hell i could just listen to um ian mcshane forever mm-hmm. he basically. can sell it yeah i thought the film was a tad too frenetically paced sure uh, and there's a feeling to, that many plot points are just sketched in and occasionally thinned down by voiceovers telling you all about the action from Lord or Lady Exposition. Oh, like yeah. scenes have been cut and things have been pasted back together, do you think? Yeah, or? Um, I, I don't believe the, uh, that Neil Marshall had final cut on this. But I from what I've uh, read online, the very good source of the internet, I think there were some production issues and I doubt he got final cut. The action's reasonably well lens for the most part, though I felt it over-reliant upon somewhat unconvincingly animated CGI occasionally. Mm, disappointing. Uh, it certainly deserves its R rating with some truly hideous instant plague victims. Yep. And exceptionally, exceptionally gory deaths. And, uh, you know, um, it's. I, I think it's a yeah, maybe film. Okay. Um, I think that actual Hellboy fans probably get more out of it. Would you recommend I see it as someone who's got a casual interest in Hellboy? Um, and a strong interest in David Harbour. Yeah, it's a good David Harbour vehicle. Okay. Uh, and there are lots of Easter eggs. And stay because there's a, a, a conclusion thing. So that's Hellboy. Um, yeah, maybe, sort of. Okay, sure. I, I think it could have been done better. I think I'll trot off to Pet Cemetery before I see that. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of cemeteries in this too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, I think um, what I'd like to do before we hand over to Joe Brunatic and Astral Glamour is actually we're actually almost there so we, we won't go with any more tracks um we'll give him a a bit of uh, uh just a uh a zero g id and we'll go off with that today yeah. thanks a lot megan no worries thank you rob uh, do you think you're going to catch up on game of thrones or is that ship sailed no no i'm going to give it a try okay Mm. Love it. Okay, and that's it for Zero G for today. And as soon as we play this message, over to Joe Brunatic with Astral Glamour. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.